Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. April 15th, 2018 was the day the Football History Dude podcast was launched into the podverse. This show takes a listener back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL now incredibly in its 100th season. As fate would have it, the mother of our guest today was also born on April 15th, albeit 115 years earlier, thus cementing the Football History Dude podcast as being blessed by NFL royalty. To spit golden football knowledge nuggets into your ear holes each and every week. The crazy thing is this whole journey started off at a Macy's department store. Welcome to the Football History Dude podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is April 15th, 1904. And we have another special guest riding shotgun with us, baby. This time the guest is Upton Bell, the son of first great commissioner of the NFL, Mr. Burt Bell himself. Now Upton's book, Present at the Creation, walks us through a journey in the history of the NFL unlike anybody else out there can. He had a first-hand glimpse of the beginning of the NFL when he was the son of Burt Bell, the first great commissioner. Upton was at a crossroads, though, when his father passed away. And then he would end up working for the Baltimore Colts and the great Don Shula. He was the youngest GM in the NFL at the time when he took over for the then Boston Patriots. He later owned the Charlotte Hornets, a World Football League organization. And as if that wasn't enough of a diverse background, he worked his way into the media as a broadcaster. And oh, by the way, he happened to interview some of the greatest people in the nation at the time. Mr. George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Stephen Hawking, just to name a few. So this is the 10,000-foot eagle-eye view of Upton's life, and there's no way that I could do it justice. So let's just get down to the nitty-gritty. Upton, welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I love football history. I love history, period. Well, I tell you what, we picked a good day. You and I just stepped off of my DeLorean, and the date is April 15th, 1904. I'm ready, coach. Put me in. This happens to be the day that your mother was born. Tell me, why are we talking about Upton Bell's mother? Why is she so important to the NFL? Well, even though the NFL pays no attention to it, and unless I, I you know, inform people nationally, the real story is that Frances Upton, the daughter of Frank Upton, who was actually chief of detectives of New York City, spoke six languages and never finished high school. Uh, she got a lucky break, ended up on Broadway. She was discovered at Macy's. 
working the perfume counter, ended up on Broadway, chick called Folly Star, one of the most beautiful women in America, uh, so on and so forth. She actually, at one time, was making more money. I mean, there were no taxes than my father. And basically, she was engaged to Bernard Baruch, the famous financier's son. She was Catholic. He was Jewish. Uh, the relationship didn't work out. And she ended up meeting my father at a party in New York. And I believe it's, uh, Charles Lindbergh was at the party. And uh, over the next two years, uh, they kind of got to know each other. And they got secretly married, actually. And Walter Winchell, who today would be one of the most famous people in America, one of the great gossip columnists, broke the story. And uh, so she came to Philadelphia. She was in Chicago doing a play. Came to Philadelphia. They got married. Uh, she then wrote out a check. They walked down to the city hall. They bought the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets for roughly about $2,500 out of bankruptcy uh, on their way back to, I, I think, his father's hotel. They saw the Franklin Delano Roosevelt National Recovery Act Eagle, and my father said, that's the name of the team. So Francis Upton was really the person who put up the money to buy the Frankfurt Yellow Jackets, renamed the Philadelphia Eagles, when his father, who was a multimillionaire, owned the Ritz-Carlton in Philadelphia, was Attorney General of Pennsylvania, but and it, you know bailed my father out many times in the stock market to $100,000 or better. So think about that in the 1920s and 30s. He just said, you know what, I, I have no interest in pro football. The college game is the important game. And so therefore he would not, lend him the money or give him the money to buy what ended up being the Philadelphia Eagles. So Frances Upton really is the mother of all pro football because after she lent him the money, of course, she went on and Bert Bell founded the NFL draft, which every league now uses. And it actually saved the National Football League. And that's why I say without her, in my opinion, there would be no league, there'd be no Bert Bell, there'd be no Eagles. So when your parents got married, did they take a honeymoon? They did. They, In fact, I found some pictures on, on the Internet of them in Atlantic City uh, on the boardwalk when Atlantic City was really, really famous. They did, but they took the football team with them. If you can imagine being, being on your honeymoon and they, they had a place in Ventnor, uh, which is right outside of Atlantic City, and basically uh, the, the team would work out on the front lawn of their honeymoon house, which they rented. Different time. Totally different world. I mean, speaking of which, too, in your book, you spoke of a story, and uh, the late Doris Day kind of comes to mind, and there's a certain individual that most people in the uh, the world probably know about that your, your mother was introduced to by Doris Day. Could you tell that story? Well, absolutely. Doris Day, of course, played uh, a Ruth Edding, and in the movie, she was married or eventually married to uh, Jimmy Cagney's character, which was Mo the Gimp Snyder, an underworld character who gave her a break in a Chicago speakeasy. But Ruth Eddy and my mother were in, were in two or three shows together, so they were roommates. And uh, they used to travel on the road together. Uh, they met Capone. They met Machine Gun, Ned McGurn, all of these fabulous characters from the 20s and 30s. But because Moe the Gimp Snyder was a very violent person, and he never knew when he would, you know, try to break into the hotel room or wherever they were staying, 
uh, that basically they both slept uh, with guns under their pillows for fear that they'd have to shoot them. <laughs> yeah, talk about a wild ride and not knowing what's going on there, you know? Well, it was. Their lives were wild, right? And so has mine been. That's the way it was. And, of course, the great thing about those days, and, again, I'm not somebody that lives in the past, but I, I do want your audience to hear what it was really like. The great thing is everybody knew each other. You know, a lot of the gangsters back big Broadway plays in those days. You know, they would bankroll them under different names and, and things like that. But with no Internet, and, you know, no Twitter and Facebook and all this other crap we have today. It was a different world. You know, you, you didn't say, geez, I was with Al Capone last night and put it on your Twitter account. And everybody says, oh, God, isn't that wonderful? Celebrities were real celebrities. Uh, today, they're fake celebrities. Everybody's a celebrity. In those days, you, you know, you, everybody knew each other all up and down the coast. And uh, they, they would get together. They'd make deals. They would, like the NFL, my father used to go to Saratoga in the summertime, which still is a very famous place for horse racing. And uh, that's where he met Art Rooney, because Rooney owned horses. And George Preston Marshall went on to own the Redskins. Uh, they met there. Uh, Marshall was the one, and Tim Mara, the father of the Maras, who, who still own partially the New York football giants. They would go there in the summertime. They'd meet. They'd have dinner. And it was actually Mara and and uh, George Preston Marshall talked by father and Art Rooney into getting into the NFL. They said, this is the future. So uh, actually, what happened was, if you go back and look at the record, Art Rooney and my father both got into the NFL at the same time. His team in Pittsburgh, my father's team in, the, in Philadelphia. So. When they started their teams off, what was it like? Were they good? Were they bad? Were they champions every year? How did that go? They were bad. <laughs> they were bad. That's And thank God they were bad, because if they weren't bad, uh, then there would be no NFL draft, because in those days, that's what happened. Uh, in a, like a 13-team league, the, the teams that made the money were the, the New York Giants, the Chicago Bears with George Hallis, the Redskins with Marshall and the Green Bay Packers with Curly Lambeau, but the rest of them starved. My father, till just a year ago, was the losingest coach in NFL history, and Rooney didn't do much better. So that's why he proposed, and in 1934, an NFL draft where the weakest teams would draft first and in inverse order, and convinced Hallis to say, okay, we're Hallis and Mara, We'll give up the idea of being the teams that really make money because, my, as my father said, the league's only as strong as its weakest link. So that's how that, that happened. You know, a lot of things happen in life accidentally or by not by any great design that Burt Bell said, let's have a draft. He said, let's have a draft because I'm going broke. Right. Did you and your, your father ever talk about the draft and things that happened during that time frame? Well, I mean, I was born in 1937, so I was alive uh, right after the first draft. You know, we lived in a hotel for a while, and then we lived in various rented houses. Remember, I lived with 33 football players. And uh, the, the one of the football players would make an extra $10 a week for being a babysitter. And so... I, w I was around them all the time, even though I was a child. 
I always considered myself somewhat less of a child, more of an adult, because I was around players all the time and, and around the scene, the action, and it kind of got a feel of, of what the game and what was life like and how did, did you survive, things like that. So you said that some of the Eagles players would babysit you as a child? Sure, I've got a check here. Uh, in fact, the last day my father was alive, Paul Lipsky, who was a starting offensive center, ran into him and just before the Eagles game in 59. My father dropped dead and uh, said, I'm on hard times. Can I borrow some money? My father said, here, here's all my cash, and I'll give you more. Next day, Bull Lipsky was my babysitter. Extra $10 a week, and I've got the check here to prove it. Yeah, so we're definitely going to get into that fateful day in 1959. Let's step it back a little further and talk about the transition of your father, for sure, he, he owned the Eagles. He started that franchise. Then he went over with Rooney and part owner of the Steelers. But what transpired when he went from owner to commissioner? And what were some of your more prominent attributes that you think that, you know, events that he had in the NFL that changed the way that we live today? Well, I think he was the greatest commissioner in sports history. I think I've told you before that he and Roselle back-to-back were the two best commissioners in sports history. But the thing that prepared him, unlike any other commissioner, remember, he was a player. He was an all-star quarterback at Penn through the first forward pass in Rose Bowl history. He was a war hero. He was an owner, coach, general manager of his own team. He understood what losing meant. He understood players better than anybody, including the so-called commissioners of today. There is no other person that walked in as the commissioner of any sport and any sport, football, basketball, baseball, hockey, that was more well-prepared. And why was he well-prepared? Because he knew what it was like to lose. He knew what it was like to be a player. He knew what it was like for a player to struggle. He knew, he knew all of those things walking in. So when the league needed him the most, when he became commissioner in 1946, people were coming back from the war. Uh, there was a question of a new league coming in, the old All-America Conference. Uh, there were so many challenges. There was the betting scandal the night before the championship game. There were all of these things. Should the league close during the war? And he told the owners, if you close, you'll never reopen. All of those things, and that's why I say the way to prepare in life is know what it's like to lose first. Know what it's like to have disappointment. Know, know what it was like to get up off the ground, whether you're a player and you're lying there injured uh, or you're somebody that's coming back from a bitter defeat, whether it's financial or otherwise. He knew all of those before he became commissioner. So... His love of the game and his passion for the NFL was undeniable and unquestionable. But with him losing so much at the beginning, and like you said, life lessons and things like that, was there a specific kind of thing that pushed him to want to keep moving on forward with the NFL instead of just folding in and giving up, do you think? I think he's one of those rare individuals uh, that had an indomitable will, that there was nothing. I mean, remember, he was, I wouldn't call him an alcoholic, but he was a social a drinker. And my mother had said to him, she said, I'll never marry a drinker. She said, if you want to give up drinking, I'll think about marrying you. If you don't, 
forget it. And he gave up drinking that day, promised he'd never take another drink again, and he never did. Just had one of those wills that it's, I won't say it's hard to find today, but I don't think at any time that he ever thought about giving up on anything. And that, that is such an unusual trait. I mean, I learned a lot growing up, but the idea that you basically, and I hope your audience will understand this from wherever point of view they come in life, that you have to, whatever it is, get up and you have to have an iron will. And he had both. I never heard him say or doubt anything. Certainly, you know, there were a lot of growing pains with the league, with the teams and everything else, but I never heard him say, you know what, I've had enough. This is, or this is ridiculous. He just didn't think that way. Hard to believe, but he didn't. Yeah, and as I read your book, I could tell that a lot of those traits passed on to you as well. Do you remember a specific conversation or a moment or anything like that that strikes in your mind when you were with your father and he gave you some kind of words of wisdom on how you should be a man growing up? Well, you know, he really didn't, and I'll tell you why. We had a very interesting family life in in that I can never remember having dinner alone. There were always a lot of people uh, there. I learned about art, politics, music, everything between my mother and my father. But in their discussions, if I listened to him, or I listened to my father on the phone with people because he had, he was on the phone almost 24 hours a day. That's the way they did business. Is he didn't say, Upton, you know, this is the way you do it or whatever else. He just didn't do that. But all you do is listen to him. And if you're willing to listen, which most people aren't today because they're too busy shooting their mouth off, I learned everything. I could learn something from a phone conversation. I could learn something from a dinner discussing politics. Uh, he was a stickler for making sure that you did your job, whether it's in school or whatever it is. But no, there were never any lectures, but there didn't need to be. That's how unusual he was. I would say it almost sounds more like through osmosis and being present and always having that, you know, leading by example, it sounds like, and it's just hard to not follow that type of a leader. My grandpa, you spoke of people like to spit off at the mouth. His famous line now is, listen with your ears, son, not your mouth. Made me think about that. Well, and, and you know, but that's why the title of the book is Present at the Creation. Basically, I saw it almost from the very beginning, but also, again, the whole idea, everybody keeps their mouth off today. Does anybody listen to anybody? I don't think so. They're too busy talking. You know, well, it's the President of the United States shooting his mouth off, or Congress, or, or you know, coaches, or especially players, the worst thing ever happened to football players or any player is they got a Twitter account. I don't want to know their lives. I want to know their performance. I don't, want, I don't want to know what they wear. If I owned a team today, I would tell the players, particularly in the NFL, uh, boys, when you come here, like they would say, check your guns at the door, I'd say, leave your cell phones here. Leave them at the door. I don't want them here. When you're through, you can go do as you please but not here, not at work, not in the locker room, not like some of these idiots have done on the field. You know, that is ridiculous. We have become permissive. 
You know, it's whatever you want to do. If you're great, get talent, be my guest, do whatever you want to do. So again, answering your question in a long roundabout way, it was example. You know, any of the great people I've been around never lectured me, but I learned a lot from them. Just watch them. Yeah, and speaking of leading by example and taking a stand, in the book and through our conversations, we've talked about that 1946 championship game and something that your father took a stance on referring to betting. And can you kind of tell that story? Yeah, we were home in, in Philadelphia and the game was in New York. Championship game, 1946 in December. And it was the Bears and the New York football Giants. And my father got a call that afternoon. He was getting ready to take the train to New York for the game the next day. Got a call from Frank Hogan, the district attorney, and said, uh, I think we've got a betting scandal problem here. Uh, two of the Giants players have not reported that they were offered bribes on the game. So they went to New York. They met all night long. They called Philchuk, Frank Philchuk, who was the quarterback, and Merle Hapes, who was a running back, in. And uh, my father decided not to suspend Philchuk. He let him play in the game. And Hapes, I don't think, played in the game. But then the next day, he suspended them for life. But he also, out of that came, because if there was a gambling scandal and it really broke, which it did in the papers the next day, it would have been the end of the NFL. But what he did is they still have today, now twice the size and worth millions of dollars, is he went around and he called the FBI because Davey O'Brien who was the quarterback for his Philadelphia Eagles game a team, had left to join the FBI and became one of the, the greatest uh, uh, single-shot uh, people in the country. He called O'Brien and said, can you talk to J. Edgar Hoover? I'd like to hire ex-FBI agents to work in each one of the league cities to follow gamblers, correct, and see if any of them were talking to players, see if players were hanging in joints, I mean, it's very controversial, and if it was today, the players would probably sue the league, sue the player association, saying you have no right to follow me. But that saved football, and the other thing he did is he instituted a, said what you still have today, that by Thursday each week, every team would have to report who was injured and who wasn't and who and why. And that helped save it, too, because in those days, nobody knew. And if somebody had a cold or was really sick, uh, the gamblers could find it out, but the public didn't, so it wasn't legitimate. So there are two steps that he took that I think really saved the league. But it could have could have gone the other way on that night. But that's another example, leadership. Boom, this is my decision. This is what we do. This is how we handle it. That came from years of handling really bad situations. Growing up, your environment and people that you're around definitely makes you who you are. Speaking of growing up and who you're around, in the book, you also discussed how you would receive all these various phone calls from, I'm not sure, was it the FBI people or who was it that was calling your father late at night? Well, he probably was the greatest PR person to as commissioner. Pete Rozelle wasn't far behind, but he would tell players, coaches, owners, and particularly the media, because he wanted to, you know, real, really uh, do a great PR job on behalf of the league, which was trying to survive. So he would say, here's my number, Mohawk 4, 
4400 call me anytime night or day boys and they did 12 1 2 3 four. if you're calling from the west coast eventually five o'clock in the morning he always used to say and i think that's what why well, died at a very young age is he said to my brother and myself two things don't ever ask who's calling and don't ever tell them i'm going to call them back get me up if you have to so as a result he knew every major writer in america he knew players would call him and he also had a private phone that nobody could touch but every sunday the gamblers that he knew would call in and give him the odds right up to game time so he could check and see if there was any fluctuation. So that phone, I don't know if it was a red phone or what it was, but there were four people. I never knew the last names. Hockey, Wingy, and no, there were three, and the other person was Frisco Legs. Don't ask me their last <laughs> name. But they were all gamblers who he had made contacts with to call him anonymously and say he would begin getting the outs on Thursday and then all the way up to game time around the league. He had two radios, he had a TV set, you know, telephone. And if he saw any fluctuation, he would actually call in the locker room and say, I want to talk to George Howells. I want to do so-and-so. What's going on there? Have you got a player sick that you haven't reported in? And that's the way he ran it. So how much do you think that contributed to the NFL survival as well from a uh, growth perspective? There's no question in my mind, and I'm talking about 50 years plus later, that he saved pro football. And in from the draft to the different rules that he put in, to sudden death, he put sudden death in, uh, to not letting the league close. Uh, as Ron Borges writes in the beginning of my book, there probably was no greater commissioner of any sport because, again, put his hands on everything. Remember, he founded the Players Association. He threatened the owners when they said, we're not going to, to recognize the Players Association. He said, you don't, then you can fire me. I mean, nobody would do that today, but he wasn't afraid of anybody. So he had, I don't even have the word to describe the impact that he had on the NFL. And that day that he passed away, I we're not going to call it a perfect data pass because it's never a good data pass, but can you talk about that game between his two teams? Well, that's what opens the book, is that basically that it was October 11th, 1959, and uh, basically, you know, as Red Smith wrote in some of the greatest writers in America, if you're going to go out, that's the way to go out. Kind of a hot day. Two teams playing he used to own, the Steelers and the Eagles. Uh, it was one of those days that was somewhat hot. He had met the governor and Art Rooney, and, and actually, he was having a conversation when I came in to the ticket office to get some tickets. And he was saying to Rooney, he said, my worry still is that we've got to get the lake to the point where the weakest teams, the ones that don't have money, are beginning to make money. And anyway, I got the tickets, went over, sat in the opposite side, the field, last two minutes of the game, Eagles are behind, and they're driving for the winning touchdown. The quarterback's Hall of Famer, Norm Van Brocklin. The wide receiver is Tommy McDonald. And uh, so what happened was they're driving, and just as McDonald is crossing the goal line with the winning touchdown, 
friend of mine said to me at binoculars, he said, there's a person down over there on the opposite side of the field. He said, and he's got a brown suit on. And I knew my father when he wore two suits, blue in the winter and brown in the summer. So I said, well, let me see. I looked through, and there was, lying on the ground in the stands, is Burt Bell. So I jumped over the uh, railing. I think I ran on the field. I'm not sure. And I said to one of the people who came out, to probably figuring out, I don't know who this kid is. He doesn't belong on the field. And I said to the guard, oh, that's my father over there. And as I explained in the book, because I was in great shape, played basketball in the South. It's the hardest run I ever made because I was out of breath with anxiety and got across the field, got up into the stands, and it was essentially too late. They had gone to the Steeler bench to see if they could save them with oxygen. And when they got the oxygen <laughs> up there in the stands, it didn't work. Somebody said, typical Steelers, they screw up everything. And um, we got in the ambulance and drove to the hospital, which was only a few blocks up the street. But I could feel his hand, and it, it was Coles. He was gone, uh, even though they tried to revive him. Now, another irony of that day is Art Mooney, was, when he heard about it, was in such a state of shock that he walked up the trolley tracks and was almost killed by a trolley uh, walking to the hospital because he was in such pain about the whole, you know, his partner, his friend, his lifelong buddy, you know, dying. So it was just one of those days. And what, again, it says to me, always did, you can never be prepared. You never know. Uh, the final irony of that day, that week, is that my father had secretly told none of us, had secretly made a deal to buy his old team back, he's going to retire as commissioner at the end of the year, buy the team back, the Eagles, go back to where his beginnings, and he'd have something for his kids. The deal was to be signed on Wednesday, and he dropped dead on Sunday. There it is. Did you get the opportunity to purchase the Eagles yourself or anybody? No. 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 The banker said, you know, we were three kids. I was just turned 21. My brother was 23. My sister was 17. The banker said no deal. Deal off. Um, one thing I did want to bring up in the uh, book, too, you mentioned his belt and his money clip. You took it. And then um, the hall, I guess, had asked for it. Did you ever give that to them or do you still have that? Nope, I didn't give them anything. But I've got it. I've got it here and it's going to go into a special collection of the history of pro football that will have my Super Bowl ring. We'll have a Burt Bell's 1919 gold football from Penn. We'll have two Chicago Bears gold footballs given to me by George Hallis uh, and a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, no, the, the, the league wanted all that stuff. I said, I'm sorry, I'm keeping it. Yeah, no, I don't blame you there. I mean, that that's your father and family. And you mentioned the, the Super Bowl ring. I have to imagine that's for Super Bowl five. Uh, it was, and the interesting thing is that ring is so valuable because there's no longer any Baltimore Colts. They're gone. Right, yeah. It's the Ravens. So think of the value of that ring. No, I'm just saying that that, that, that value of that ring is priceless. I've had all 
thousands of dollars offered for all the stuff that I have. But you know what? Money can't get you anything. I get you some happiness for a while, but money never had anything uh, to play in my life. I never made a decision based upon money. Yeah, no, I mean, like you said, short-lived value, but there's nothing that can replace the memories and the experience that you've gone throughout your life, which is an incredible journey for anyone that's out there that has not read this book. Again, I'm going to have a link in the show notes for you for the Amazon book, Present at the Creation. This kind of helps us transition into post-Eagles, post-Burt Bell. Upton Bell, he's got to find his way on his own. What is he going to do after the Eagles? Where did you go? Well, you're going to just have to wait until next week to figure out the next chapter in Upton Bell's journey of being present at the creation of the NFL. Sure, he did drop some of those golden knowledge nuggets that I keep talking about, diving deep into the story of Burt Bell and why he is considered by many as the person who saved the NFL from dying out, just like so many other professional football leagues out there did. And I included an Amazon link to Upton's book, Present at the Creation, on his dedicated page on the site. To check this book out and learn more about Upton Bell, you can head to thefootballhistorydude.com forward slash Upton Bell. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com forward slash Upton Bell. Now next week, the story really heats up for Upton, because he has a decision to make. And we're going to shift the topic to what he did after his father passed away watching his two teams at Franklin Field. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes... We're going, we don't need roads. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.